The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Off the Shelf gives a voice to commercial service and product companies selling in the federal market. Roger speaks to members and government officials about procurement policy, trends, innovations, and debate. Now your host, Roger Waldron. Today my guest on Off the Shelf is Addie Cliff. Addie is a partner at Kroll & Mooring a government contracts firm here in Washington, D.C., and she has extensive experience in GSA schedules, Trade Agreements Act issues, IG investigations, voluntary disclosures, all the fun stuff that government contractors have to deal with. Addie, welcome to the show. Thanks, Roger. Really glad to be here today. Well, I'm looking forward to the conversation. Um, you know, I think let's start first with the GSA schedules program. I know you do a lot of work there, advising clients on you know, dealing with audits, which are part of the program in and of themselves. So what what are you seeing right now? What's going on with regard to GSA schedules and, you know, how audits are working? It's it's an interesting time, isn't it? It absolutely is. And, and just to set the stage a little, so there's two basic types of audits that the OIG does. There's pre-award audits where they're helping the contracting officer with the price negotiation. And then there's post-award audits that really focus on compliance with the terms and conditions And I would say starting first with pre-award audits, what I've seen is a real change in how the OIG auditors view their role, at least over the course of the past 10, 12, 13 years that I've been doing this. So whereas it used to be more of a validation exercise, I would say, is the contractor actually submitting accurate information? Accurate and complete. That's right. right, Exactly. Now I would say the auditors view themselves really as rolling up their sleeves and, and partnering with the contracting officer. So for example, you might have an auditor who even questions the proposed methodology for uh, justifying the pricing, for example. What we've seen in in the last year or two is auditors pushing for cost buildup information and saying, you know, we don't think your commercial sales are sufficient in terms of volume, in terms of comparability, so why don't you just give us cost information and we'll move to that approach, right? Um, And that can be challenging for contractors. The whole reason we have these GSA schedules sells commercial items, right? And these contractors are not set up to provide cost information. Right. That would seem to me, if you're a traditional commercial contractor out there and you want to do business through the commercial item contracting program to be asked to do a cost buildup, which is alien to the commercial world, that would be, I mean, that must be a tough thing to try to navigate. Exactly. I think it's very tough. I think what that reflects is that Commercial sales practices are very complex and nuanced, and and perhaps the the way that GSA gathers the commercial sales practices information uh, reflects an earlier time. Uh, it reflects commodities, not services. And so I think on either side, both the contractor side and the GSA contracting officer side, folks are really struggling with how to make sense of those commercial sales and how to do the, the price justification. So turning to cost buildup is one way that seems like a simple solution, but I think adds a layer of complexity. Yeah, just touch on that a little bit more. That's that's a really great observation with regard to it's the commercial sales practices format, the the form that GSA uses that I think dates back to the early 1990s. I think I know the person who actually worked on it. <laughs> I was going to say 1872, know, but maybe. Okay. maybe. <laughs> okay. okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was around back then. <laughs> um, but uh, just it is sort of trying to put a you know, a square peg in a round hole in terms of getting 
that type of information you really commercial information really that that folks need to reach an agreement and negotiate a contract yeah isn't that's it? that's right if you look at the form it's a two page form it looks very simple it has a chart on it I think you see it you say wow this is going to be easy right um, it supposes that the company has a published list price I think it goes back to this notion that you have a list price and the way that you sell things are you're selling at list price or you're giving standard discounts from list price and there are very few companies out there that use that methodology for their pricing practices. You know, right. I think- we have a thing called the internet now, right? Isn't that, isn't that right? <laughs> so I can say that. But in, in right, but really, you know, pricing is market driven. It's not static in the context of a price list, right? That's right. right. And and the form asks, you know, the yes or no questions, this this short little box to disclose and and it really doesn't give room to explain the complexities of pricing practices and why certain commercial sales may not be equivalent to what you would expect under the GSA schedule contract. So when we're talking to folks that are filling this out, we say it's probably well not it's probably not well done if you don't have a document attached to your CSP1 form that provides a narrative with with a much deeper explanation. Right, is that that's about like disclose 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 kind of thing to, that's to right. cover your bases, right? Absolutely, because when we talk about post-award compliance audits, you know, if there's ambiguity in terms of the negotiations that you had, the OIG can use that to you know, make arguments as to being entitled to a refund. Whereas if you disclose, 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 you you have a much better argument later on that the contracting officer was aware of. Yeah, it was aware of it, considered it, and and made whatever decision he or she did with regard to the negotiation with with your client, right? Exactly. And and that leads me to the post-award audits. And I think that the trend that we're seeing there is that there is no trend. So uh, it's exactly the same issues that contractors are are uh, stumbling upon, which is defective pricing issues. So, you know, the the OIG is saying, okay, your disclosures were not current, accurate, and complete, and price reduction clause monitoring. Those are the two biggest issues. Those are the ones where GSA is getting recouping the most in refunds. And I personally don't think that that reflects contractors who are trying to hide the ball. I think it demonstrates that this form and this process is really challenging, and 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 it's tough. Yes. Well, you are you you've seen those like every year or two, the IG does this little memo and says like seventy five percent of the contractors have failed to accurately disclose or whatever or report the information. And to me, you know, I'm going to give you my my view on this. um, But you know, these companies aren't trying; they're trying to comply. The 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 instructions and the form and and the interaction, it's so, I don't know if the word is opaque or just lacks clarity and and sort of simplicity as to how you're supposed to, how what you really and what's really relevant in terms of disclosures and all that kind of stuff that you you can't, it, it's, it, it demonstrates the, you know, the problems with the process as opposed to the, you know, we've got rampant companies out there trying to you know, not disclose things. Absolutely. I think that's fair. And I, I would say the challenges are on both sides, right? I think the contracting officers are also hamstrung a bit by a process and yeah. documentation, yeah. and they're familiar with that. And I think this is most apparent in the realm of services, which yeah. okay. by nature, you know, services are unique to a particular scope of work, and they don't lend themselves as easily to disclosure on a commercial sales practices form. Um, oftentimes, there isn't a list price for services. There's sort of the market rates that you're establishing on a case-by-case basis, and that's pretty challenging to disclose in this manner. Yeah, well, that yeah, services, you've got people you're dealing with, right? 
and it's not a thing that you can look at and even get a sense of. And to your point, you can you're buying um, services based on the requirement to be performed and how you get to determining fair and reasonable. Pricing at the contract level, that's a difficult thing. Yeah, exactly right. I mean, services by nature, you know, they're not a commodity. They are really specific to the effort. And I think what we've seen anecdotally is under GSA schedule contracts, most of the actual orders end up getting awarded on a competitive basis for firm fixed price based on a statement of work. So Exactly what the government <laughs> wants, right? Well, exactly. Yeah. And that's a good thing. But people yeah. are expending yeah. a lot of energy negotiating pricing for the T&M contract where most of the orders are actually going to end up being you know, firm fixed price orders. Well, that leads me to my next question then. You, know, you, you teed that up great. So I was going to ask you about – so GSA now has this authority to – with the sort of people call it the unpriced schedule. Really what that is is, you know, you don't negotiate, you know, prices at the contract level. Um, you leave the competition for the requirement and the pricing at the order level and you do some uh, sort of qualitative evaluation perhaps, whatever. You know, it's a DO, authority DOD has had for a couple of years. Is this the, you know, could this – you know, streamline and improve the acquisition services from your perspective? In the world, according to Addy, I think this is a very elegant solution to the problems that we're seeing, and it's something that I, I hope uh, GSA latches onto. I think it's an efficient use of resources. So the GSA contracting officer would focus on the general terms and conditions other than pricing, uh, make sure that it's still streamlined for the customer agencies. And the customer agencies who are generally doing their own price evaluation anyway, DOD by by policy has to do its yeah. own price valuation, they can focus on the price elements. Yeah, it, it makes a lot of sense. Um, makes a lot of common sense, right? So, <laughs> um, but Addy, you know what? We're already up on the first break. And when we come back, yeah, I still want to keep the conversation about schedules because I want to get your thoughts on how transactional data reporting has been implemented and what, what, if anything, you're seeing with regard to, you know, contractors who are uh, under that or are there trends moving in that direction. Um, my guest today is Addie Cliff. She's a partner at Coral & Mooring. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off This Shelf on Federal News Radio, a part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off The Shelf on Federal News Radio, a part of the Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron, and I'm here with my fellow maniac, Addie Cliff. Addie is a partner at Kroll and & Boring, and, uh, and she does a lot of government contract work in the GSA schedules arena in particular, and that's what we've been talking. First segment, Addie, we talked about that, and I know I mentioned TDR at the end of, the, uh, at the end of that segment. Can you talk a little bit about what you're seeing with regard to TDR, that's the transit. First, let's, you can explain it for the audience. What, what, what is TDR? <laughs> well, before I do that, I'm going to say that by maniac, we mean we're both from Maine and not that we're both clinically insane, although I can't well, vouch you, for yeah, you Roger's can, state of mind. <laughs> <laughs> so the TDR refers to the transaction, transaction data reporting pilot program, which was an effort by GSA to – uh, go in a different direction in terms of how it does its price evaluation. We talked about the CSPs in our earlier segment. There's also the price reduction clause, which basically pegs your GSA pricing to a commercial customer uh, to ensure that throughout the course of the contract, the government continues to get the best pricing. The idea behind TDR is that the government actually can look at your sales to federal customers to determine whether it's getting good pricing, uh, that the government 
has this data and can collect additional data and, and, and look at it and ensure that the pricing is, is um, reasonable. The good thing about TDR is that it gets rid of the requirement to submit CSPs and to have a price reduction, the price reduction clause. So you don't have to monitor a basis of award customer, which is a huge relief or should be a huge relief for most contractors. Um, I have to say that when it was rolled out, I expected most people to jump at TDR uh, initially thinking, wow, everyone struggles with the CSP disclosures. Everyone struggles with the basis of award customer, the price reductions clause. This is going to be a big relief. Everyone's going to jump on board. And there was a real reluctance at the beginning of the pilot program. You may have noted that too. Yes. I think what people were concerned about, what I was hearing at least, is that they thought it was going to be a race to the bottom. So – you have your GSA schedule pricing, but customer agencies can actually ask for discounts from that and, in fact, are encouraged to. And I think what we see is that most agencies, if not all, do, in fact, ask for additional discounts from your GSA schedule pricing. So contractors were concerned. Once they start submitting this data, the contracting officer would see that, yes, they were discounting at the order level and would push to lower their GSA schedule price. Now you have a lower GSA schedule price. Now your customer agencies are saying, well, I need a discount from that. Once again, CO comes back. So it would sort of be a race to the bottom and it would be untenable. Um, I think that was one concern. I'd also heard people say, look, they still have the ability to ask for commercial data if they need it to justify the pricing. So essentially we're going to be under both regimes anyway. Um, That was another concern. And and finally, some folks were concerned about whether they would actually be able to compile and and submit the data. It's it's monthly reporting. Um, That could be challenging. So I think people were pretty worried about that. Um, it's been kind of a slow burn in terms of people people adopting it. But now I'm seeing people adopt yeah, it more and more. you mentioned before the show that you'd seen more people. Yeah, so, so I think it's becoming more popular. Perhaps this goes back to what I said about the the audits and, and being more probing and more active in the pricing. And I think folks are not throwing up their hands. That would be overly um, dramatic. But, you know, just as they struggle with those CSPs and PRC, they said, okay, this let's try this right. approach out. The other thing that we've seen anecdotally is that contracting officers have not, in fact, been pushing to change the ceiling price on the GSA schedule contract. Right. Well, you know, I have to tell you, so that that race to the bottom, that concern is something that I heard, too, from companies. And it harkens back to the dark ages of the GSA schedule program, (laughs) where the rule used to be is that if you gave a customer agency, a government agency, a lower price, under most circumstances, that meant that became your price on your schedule contract. And that, you know, that served to eliminate any kind of dynamic pricing or response to specific requirements. And companies were then reluctant to offer a price for a real better deal at the moment in time. I'm going to buy 10,000 widgets. And that that would become the marker for every other agency. That's, you know, that's not untenable in business, really, frankly. So that was... That that's one of the things that we heard as well, Addy, from from customer agencies. Now you mentioned the price reduction clause, so I can't help but not get a question on that. And then then I want to ask you about audits in general. But with regard to the price reduction clause, can can you explain really for for listeners what that is, and then perhaps add on like what do people need to think about when they're trying to navigate, you know, identifying that tracking customer. Sure. So the GSA schedule contract has a clause that says uh, if you give a discount to a basis of award customer, you have to notify your contracting officer and give a corresponding discount on your GSA schedule. The idea is we're pegging this pricing to a commercial customer category of customer, and it allows us to maintain fair and reasonable pricing throughout the, the life of the GSA schedule contract. 
Sounds fairly simple. Um, a few problems with this or a few challenges, should I say. The contracting officers always want the basis of award customer to be all commercial customers. For a lot of organizations, big companies, it's not feasible to real-time monitor the discounts that are being given to all commercial customers. So I would say it's unconscionable. But it's, <laughs> well, I, I can say that. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, can you come up with a category or a single customer that the contracting officer will actually agree to? You know, that's a challenge. Um, and even then, you know, maybe that discount was for issues that uh, was for some reason that really isn't applicable to your GSA schedule contract. Um, so when we talk about defining the BOA customer we always tell people, again, it goes to this disclose, disclose, disclose. Yeah. Be very clear. Try to make it as narrow as possible um, while still giving GSA reasonable comfort that it's an actual – a good benchmark, right? So pick sure. a category where you can say, look, they do this much of sales. It's the same type and flavor. Right. It's more, most like the government. Exactly. Right, right. Um, but make it someone that you actually can monitor so that you can comply with that obligation. And then define the types of discounts that shouldn't trigger the PRC. You know, If you have an issue where – a cu- customer satisfaction issue and you give a discount – to resolve that issue. You know, that's not really a discount that should apply yes, generally right. to your GSA. So, so thinking through those issues to make it manageable and make sense. Now, whether you can actually negotiate that, again, increasingly difficult. I think maybe internally there's a push within GSA to have broader basis of award customers. I do know, you know, when we talk about TDR, uh, the, the, the OIG is not quite as enamored with TDR as I think the business folks at, at GSA have been and, and has express skepticism that yes. that it ensures that the government is getting the best price. Um, so I, I put that out there. You know, I think that they the, the OIG very much thinks the PRC is necessary to, to maintain Oh, yeah, this. absolutely. That, you know, they're at a point where they believe it's, you know, it's, it's essentially required by statute, if I read their last memo correctly, which is not an accurate statement, frankly. Um, so – so you've got that PRC and you've got CSP and now we've got an audit. So, And one of the things that you, you do is you support and advise companies when they're going through the audit process. And so can you just talk about best practices and what companies need to think about as they organize to address you know, an, an audit of their contract? Yeah, I think first and foremost, it's important to be thinking about audits before you're anywhere near an audit. So when you're first negotiating your schedule or up for renewal, you should be conducting your own diligence as though you were GSA auditors. So as you're putting together your CSP, your other pricing documents, pull all the sales transactional data, look at it, talk to your salespeople, look at invoices, all the things that an auditor might be doing, and then put a memo to file so that you remember what you did, what you looked at, where those documents are organized, what you may have excluded, and for what reason. I think doing that type of preparation makes the audit go that much you know, smoother. And then just thinking about operationally how you're going to comply with the PRC, who your basis of award is, thinking about an audit and how you would respond to that. So making sure that your enterprise management system has ways of tracking the basis of award customer, tracking your GSA sales, something as simple as having a field to indicate that a particular order is a GSA schedule order. You would be surprised how many contractors aren't set up in that way and doing their you know, reporting on their industrial funding yeah, fee is a yeah. manual exercise, right? Yeah. Is tr- part of that preparation, like thinking, you know, in advance, is training of your you know, sales for- workforce and all that kind of. Is that a big part of it? Too? Absolutely, and and that's something that that we do a lot, and I think is uh, considered best practices, and certainly can be helpful if you ever find yourself 
with an audit or an investigation down the road. And it's not just training the contracts management people. What I've found is oftentimes the contracts management people are familiar with these requirements and fairly savvy on it, but it's the salespeople and especially on the commercial side Uh who don't understand the implications or the accounting and finance people who may not appreciate, you know, the importance of these issues. Right. Well, Addie, you know what? We're up on the uh, on the break already. When we come back, we'll continue our discussion of audits, and we'll start, the, you know, expanding the conversation to some other area, supply chain risk areas, perhaps um, another area you do a lot of work in. My guest today is Addie Cliff. She is a partner at Kroll and Mooring. I'm Roger Waldron, and you are listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, a part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, a part of the Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is Addie Cliff. She is a partner at Kroll and & Mooring. And we've been talking um, about one of my favorite subjects, GSA Schedules Program, the, the policies, the audits. And Addie, when we took the break, you, you were talking about the audit process. And you know, one of the things I, th- I think we want, wanted to get to next is, so, okay, so then – You've got the request. Can you describe the request and then what do companies need to think about when they get, you know, when they request for the data and they're going to come in and do an audit? Right. So the data request will depend on the type of audit, the pre-award or the post-award. Pretty extensive and it'll be probing the issues that we've touched upon, you know, for the for the pre-award audit, they'll be asking more broadly for information supporting the commercial sales practices. So lots of sales transactional data for commercial customers, invoices, et cetera. On the, on the post-award compliance audit, they'll be asking about for documents for these pricing issues, but also things like timesheets for T&M contracts, you know, maybe certifications for TAA compliance. Um, what I tell folks is, all right, you get a data call from the auditors, three pages long, a bunch of of data, the first thing is to sit down and look through it uh, and think, okay, what what information is readily available? What information is going to take me a while to put together? What information are they asking for that maybe we don't have and, and won't be able to provide and triage it in that manner and then have either an introductory call or, or a communication, written communication with the auditors to provide that sort of timeline. You know, we're going to get you this within this time frame. Um, it's not uncommon to need extensions and you have to ask for that early and and often and be clear about why you need it. For those uh, requests where you're not going to be able to provide the information because you don't have it, you know, that's something that I like to proactively engage with the auditors. Here's why we don't have it. We understand you're probably trying to verify X, Y, Z. Here's what we can provide to give you comfort, right? So offering something up. Um, And in terms of the you know, the structure of the communication between the auditors and and the contractor, can you can you what are some of the best practices people need to think about in terms of how like is there a single point of contact or how and, and when is it important to like just get all in the room and and talk about things? Yeah, exactly. So typically on the auditor side, there's going to be one lead auditor who will be sending emails and requests. And on the contractor side, it's good to have one person who's going to be the lead and going to be interfacing with the auditors. Typically, it's done by email with follow-up requests coming by email. I think there's uh, obviously an importance of having everything documented. So even if there are phone calls, you know, you want to follow up memorializing that in an email to the extent there were substantive conversations. What I've found is that oftentimes the back and forth can start getting a little out of control. So there's a particular request and 
you know, you follow up that you don't have that item or maybe there's some confusion and, and it's sort of going into this spin of 10, 15 emails. And at that point, I usually say, OK, let's push the pause button. Why don't we suggest a phone call or even better, an in-person meeting so we can say, here's what we provided. What are we trying to get at? Right. Maybe right. we need to explain something better because the auditors don't know your industry. They don't know your your business. Um, and sometimes it's an educational exercise to make sure the auditors do understand that. Yeah, that's a great that's a great observation. One thing I wanted to ask you when you were describing the you know what the review, what are you seeing with regard to like labor qualifications? Is that it? I mean that's an area where I know the IG, or I've heard the IGs over the years have started to pay more attention to. Can you? Describe yeah, what that issue is. And- sure. So for those that have services on their GSA schedule contract, the different labor categories are defined by minimum qualifications. So education level, experience level, et cetera. Um, and the expectation, and in fact, your contractual commitment is that the individuals who are performing those services will meet those qualifications. Um, GSA increasingly has been probing in that area. So asking for resumes and timesheets to verify which individuals were performing the services and whether they met those qualifications. Um, I think that's a challenging area for contractors. Some were maybe caught off guard by this and didn't have the resume information. Or, you know, oftentimes a customer agency would say, we know this person, we want this person to do the work. Mm -hmm. And maybe it's a person that doesn't have that particular experience, but has something else that's equally compelling, right? But, you know, the auditors aren't going to care about that. They're going to look at the face of your contract. So I do think that's a thorny area to be aware of. And how how does it work? Do you have any thoughts on the idea so, because you mentioned earlier, you know, lots of the orders now are firm fixed price. Right? That's right. So they're not even time and material. So, so what's that dynamic if you're, you know, you've got a firm fixed price for a service, and you've got the labor hour rates on your contract with some sort associated yeah. qualifications? Well, there's an interesting issue that has come up in that respect. I think contractors have taken the position. Firm fixed price is firm fixed price. It's it's by nature different than a TNM yes. contract, right? Yeah. I'm taking the risk of cost overrun. The OIG has viewed it differently. Um, it's it said essentially, you know, we negotiated a rate that was fair and reasonable, and so we need to be able to look under the hood of those firm fixed price contracts to see whether, if we do a rate times hour estimate, you know, are we still getting the right pricing? So oftentimes, for those firm fixed price efforts, a contractor will say, well, you know, thirty thousand dollars based on a rough estimate of this many hours for this type of person. The OIG and looking at that is going to effectively sometimes treat it like a TNM contract. Right. So I think that's another issue that that yeah, comes up. When is a firm fixed price order <laughs> not a firm fixed price order? That's exactly the, right. Yes, yeah, that's very a, philosophical. That's, yeah, it's, it's, it's <laughs> yes, um, it's an interesting dynamic. Um, another area with some interesting things going on, and it's a big focus these days um, across the procurement community. You know, government industry on the hill you know, as well as supply chain risk. So just to sort of level set things, and we can have a conversation about that. What do you see going on with regard to supply chain risk, just from a big picture perspective? Yeah, and I'll say at the outset that in the same way that cybersecurity was the buzzword for the past maybe four or five years on everyone's mouth, I think the, the broader concept of supply chain security is going to be the buzzword going forward that we're all going to be struggling with. Um, just conceptually, what are we talking about here? Um, It's a concept that gets used in a few different ways. I think primarily when the government's talking about supply chain security, they're talking about our adversaries using the supply chain to get intelligence about the U.S. government and what they're buying and when, uh, to exfiltrate 
technical data to corrupt the quality of, of products, um, even to, you know, influence the people that are performing services and providing products. So it's a very broad concept that from prime contractors down to the lowest tier vendors, there are opportunities for adversaries to to use that um, to the, you know, to the to the risk of the U.S. government. I think it's – and it's not just nefarious actions. There could also be concerned about the corruption of quality of products and services that aren't by adversaries. But it's really being driven by by adversaries. And I think we can't – The near-peer adversaries. That's right. And, yeah. and it's hard to talk about this without highlighting China, right? A lot right. of concerns about China in particular. Yeah, so – and the reaction sort of has been, you know, Congress has, you know, put directives in place, you know, the, and now the executive branch is trying to implement some of these things and – you know, there, and there's that whole, in particular, a whole focus on cyber, um, especially at the department. Um, can you talk a little bit about what's going on there? Yeah, there. Well, there certainly is a lot going on, and I'll say that it falls within two basic buckets of the initiatives that we're seeing. There's compliance requirements that are getting rolled out, not just uh, to DoD contractors, also to civilian agencies, and I can touch on a few of those. But also, there's incentives. There's the side of saying, okay, we're not just going to impose requirements; we're going to make supply chain security, an evaluation factor so that contractors who really get this and are investing in it will win more awards. And we're seeing that play out, you know, in different ways. And and just going to the competitive edge, you know, there was a really interesting protest that I like to highlight for folks because I think a lot of commercial contractors look at this and say, well, I don't need to worry about this. I'm not a defense aerospace company. Um, there was a – it's the Ironbow case where there was a U.S. contractor providing printers to the IRS – doesn't get much more commercial it's item basic, than that, right? right? Yeah, basic stuff there, right? <laughs> uh, the printers were being manufactured uh, in the U.S., I believe, by a U.S. company, a subcontractor. Nevertheless, Iron Bow was uh, kicked out of the competition because of supply chain risk that the IRS perceived because the printer manufacturer was partially owned by a Chinese investment fund. And that was viewed as unreasonable supply chain risk. It was protested. Um, as you would probably imagine, Roger, the courts and GAO are going to give agencies significant deference when it comes yep. to national security. So these are things we have to be thinking about. Yeah. Um, along those lines, uh, you know, I don't, the, you know, with um, with Section 889, and I guess the, the, the effort to implement that right now, um, that's the, the – the language that prohibits Huawei, and then I guess there's some other, you know, Chinese surveillance, you know, companies who make cameras and whatnot. You know, what are you seeing in that regard? Yeah, um, and I, I think I mentioned maybe China in the crosshairs, but obviously more and more concern about China as well as some other countries. You know, first we had the Kaspersky ban. Really, yes. I think was the first yeah. time we saw this where there was a procurement ban on software products from Russian software company Kaspersky. Um, and now the the Huawei band, it's ZTE, a few others, and, yeah, and there's ZTE, authority yeah. to designate to designate others. But I think more and more the government is going to be putting these requirements on contractors. And there's a clear tension, right? Huawei products are ubiquitous. Everyone is using them and using them commercially. Um, and it's not very – it's not easy when GSA rolls out the requirement as a quote-unquote bilateral modification um, – to, to be able to make that representation that there, nowhere in your supply chain are you using that in the performance of that contract. I think that word use, I think, might be the the key thing that just it's, – it's, to your point, it's ubiquitous out there. It's yeah. Trying to figure it out on, on all sides, right? Right. And, so. and you know, this is, this is the tension that we have between 
government contracts and commercial item, and it's it's a tension that's always been there. But GSA schedules, for example, how are you know these are contractors that are on GSA schedule because they have commercial sales of the item. You don't have this requirement on the commercial side. How are contractors going to deal with that um, with that requirement? Yeah. And we're up on our last break, Addie. My guest today is Addie Cliff. She is a partner at Crowell Mooring. Um, and I am Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, a part of the Federal News Network. And Addie, when we come back, we'll continue our conversation of supply chain. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, a part of the Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is Addie Cliff, a fellow Mainer. Uh, who is also a partner at Crow and Mooring, um, and all good people come from Maine. <laughs> That's or, a true or, fact. Or, yes, objectively absolutely. true. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, but uh, uh, when we took the break, we were talking about sourcing issues, and I know you do a lot of uh, Buy American Act, Trade Agreements Act type issues, advising clients on those things. So this is, and you can talk about those, but also this is just adding another layer of complexity to the whole sourcing and where you get stuff made and substan- all those kind of issues. Is yeah, that right? That's absolutely right. I think these supply chain security uh, initiatives as they're being rolled out, out are adding a layer of complexity for procurement to deal with. Um, the fact of the matter is most companies have a global supply chain and in fact an imperative yeah. to keep costs down. So you know, I think we've gotten used to dealing with the, the Buy American Act, the Trade Agreements Act, and now there's a changing landscape where there are requirements to Either disclose where you're having software developed, where you're sourcing things, or even prohibitions against you know sourcing from certain contractors. And I think it's just going to make it harder and harder for companies to comply in this area. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about that. So, because that you know this raises a whole new you know I guess avenue or area of potential civil false claims act liability. So, I mean, just to me, it, it just emphasizing the importance of understanding. Your supply chain and disclosing to the government is that fair? Yeah, to say? that's right. I think that people are predicting this is the next big uh, area for False Claims Act risk. We've now seen a pretty major settlement yes, in this uh, area for failing to meet the standards. You know, I think it's the combination of there being a lot of material requirements in this area combined with it being a really tough area for compliance. The standards are constantly evolving. The requirements are evolving. They're in many respects inconsistent or in conflict with commercial practices. So it requires a level a level of diligence, uh, committing resources to it to make sure that you're you know, sufficiently prepared and protected uh, in the event of some sort of allegation, investigation, whistleblower claim. Yeah. Do you see this? You, you touched on something. I just want to pull the string a little bit more on it. It's just you know, the commercial item contracting and that philosophy access to the commercial market at the same time, this growing you know, framework for supply chain assurance and addressing cyber risk, those in the government's requirements, is, is, is the government going to be leading the commercial market on this? Is it going to be in conflict to the commercial market? Is the commercial market going to adjust? I know that's three, about maybe three sub-questions or whatever, but what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I do think ultimately the commercial side likely will adjust in some respects. I mean, I think that this is an area where DOD and the government has been leading the pack. But on the commercial side, what we're seeing is commercial entities are equally concerned with the disclosure of sensitive data, proprietary data. You know, I do I do a lot of M&A work and cybersecurity has actually been a really important part of diligence even outside of the government contracting realm, right? Companies right. very much care about what companies are doing to protect assets and data. So 
Um, the fact is that the government's out in front right now, so there's significant tension and it causes issues for contractors trying to figure out, okay, if I'm going to spend a bunch of money for this, you know, to get this government work, am I going to recoup um, and how? And and until the, the you know, commercial side catches up with things, I think we're going to struggle with that. Yeah, that's interesting. And, and the question is, are, you know, that whole idea of well, we want to get innovators and the innovation from the private sector and how, I mean, Ideally, you want to get innovation on how to address the cyber risk, right? But- right. Well, you know, it's interesting too because DOD, at the same time that it is uh, raising these supply chain security concerns and putting a lockdown on on certain foreign sur- sourced items, it's very much looking to foreign companies for some leading edge technologies and putting a lot of money and effort into Silicon Valley with you know startup tech companies yeah. doing very cool things. But these are not companies. Who have who understand, appreciate, and have been living by these special government requirements. So I think there's education to do on both sides. I think this is a good opportunity for collaboration, actually, uh, between the private sector and and the government. Right. And another area I wanted to talk or get your you know layout for the for the listening audience is you know DoD has imposed you know additional requirements on handling of uh, of information. Can you talk about that regime a little bit? We've got a, like three or four minutes left. Yeah, that's right. The DFAR safeguarding rule, which was rolled out, I think that's another uh, buzz that a lot of people are dealing with, which is basically a requirement that applies to contractors and subcontractors who receive, store, transmit, generate what's called covered defense information, CDI. Those are categories of DOD-related controlled and classified information. Um, it was rolled out. It's, it's a clause that's in all the contracts. Uh, contractors are required to flow it down if their subcontractors are going to similarly handle, receive, generate CDI. Um, and the standards that it imposes, well, I'll say the requirement is threefold. So if you have that and if you're subject to the clause, you have to notify the government within a certain time period of certain cyber events. You have to make sure your IT systems meet certain NIST standards and they're quite onerous and difficult to to meet. And then you have to flow it down appropriately to subcontractors. A lot of prime contractors have spent significant millions of dollars to come into compliance. It's taken a long time with these requirements. Um, some of the challenges we've seen, you know, folks are flowing it down regardless of whether the subcontractors are actually handling CDI. Uh, nobody really knows how and when to push back. Some are flowing it down purposefully when it doesn't apply, saying, you know what, we don't care if it doesn't apply. These are the standards we expect you to meet because yeah, we care. To do business with us. That's right. right. Yeah. Um, we're also expecting to see a similar rule come out on the civilian side, um, probably with, with very similar standards. So I think this is the new normal, and, and companies are just going to have to get their arms around these standards and work towards it. Yeah. You, you mentioned a couple of the channel, challenges with regard to subcontractors. I presume you advise both prime contractors right. and subcontractors. And what's been effective in, in, in those you know, two groups trying to figure this out you know, obviously, you got to work together to do it, right? But what do you, you know, you get, you get, you get both perspectives. Yeah, that's right. And and I, I do think there's been a lot of collaboration uh, with the more sophisticated prime contractors working with perhaps smaller uh, commercial lower tier subs to understand the requirements to help them get up to speed. Um, and it's in the interest of those higher tier contractors to work with the subcontractors. And then you have subcontractors who say, you know what? We're not in a position to handle this. We're going to put our hands up and say, no, we don't want you to give us CDI because we absolutely cannot meet this. Um, and then that prime contractor has to make a business decision, right, about whether that's that's feasible or not. Right. So so we have about a minute or minute and a half, two minutes left. So 
I wanted to give you a chance to like, just take a step back. You, you, you've talked about all things compliance here, or we have, right? So if you were going to leave the, the, you know, the listening audience with some like, two or three things you would, with regard to compliance that they need to remember, because compliance is foundational to doing business with the government, to me. You can't, you know, that's why there are lawyers, right? Absolutely. <laughs> so, so what would the, those two or three things be? Yeah, and I'll, maybe I'll make one point on the GSA side and then one on the supply chain security. Sure, that'd be great. Yeah, so I think on the GSA side, you know, we talked about disclose, disclose, disclose. I think that's really uh, the key is to be very clear and transparent and to draw hard boundaries around things that are not feasible from a business standpoint. So don't let yourself get pushed into a situation where you're signing up to something that you can't actually do. So that's a key point on the GSA schedules. On the supply chain side, I would say if your compliance program does not have a supply chain security element to date, then you better get moving on that. And that's going to require collaboration between contracts management, procurement, IT, legal, compliance. It's really a holistic effort. Addie, great stuff. Thank you so much. Thank you, Roger. My guest today has been Addie Cliff. She's a partner at Kroll & Mooring. I'm Roger Waldron, and you've been listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, a part of the Federal News Network. You've been listening to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Tune in Tuesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.